Hello, and welcome to another episode of A-Minder. I'm Ellen Rowe, and I'm back to fill you in on the latest in the field of vascular contributions to Alzheimer's disease. This episode covers papers that showed up on PubMed in June 2022, and we've got 12 on deck for you today. It's mostly clinical studies this month, with a lot of emphasis on how vascular abnormalities synergize with the classic Alzheimer's disease hallmarks of amyloid and tau to feed into cognitive decline. We've also got a few papers on vascular abnormalities in familial Alzheimer's disease, and some more evidence that the APOE4 genetic risk may be through vascular dysfunction. Stay tuned to learn more about how blood vessel health is implicated in Alzheimer's disease, and for disease perspective, a bit more lively than the classic amyloid cascade hypothesis. Welcome to Aminder, a podcast where we summarize the latest publications on Alzheimer's disease for you, so you can spend more time doing awesome research. For every month, you'll find a series of episodes by theme, and each comes with a bibliography. Whether you're in the lab, on the bus, or cooking your meal, we hope you find this podcast useful and accessible. All right, thanks for tuning in, everyone. It's good to be back. As always, I'll start off the episode with some context for the new listeners. So as always, go ahead and skip forward if you're already familiar with this landscape of research or if you're not new here. So the brain is one of the most highly vascularized organs, with no more than a hair's width between any neuron and its closest blood vessel. As you likely know, or can infer from that fact, the cerebrovasculature is critical in keeping the brain healthy and functional. It plays a lot of key roles, like being the highway of nutrient and oxygen delivery to the brain, it's a main route of waste disposal, including amyloid clearance, and its highly selective blood-brain barrier is critical to keep blood proteins, pathogens, and immune cells out of the brain. When these functions are compromised, like when there is reduced blood flow to the brain or when the blood-brain barrier is compromised, this can lead to metabolic stress and inflammatory cascades. So really, the blood vessels may actually be responsible for some of the initiating events in the AD pathology. As a field, we're starting to appreciate that vascular dysfunction is an early event in the AD pathology, as we see changes in cerebral blood flow and loss of blood-brain barrier integrity with age and with the main genetic risk factor for Alzheimer's disease, ApoE4. As we tune into the importance of the vasculature in maintaining brain health, we're learning a lot about how things might go wrong through the course of developing Alzheimer's disease and how maintaining vascular health and function could be a new way of preventing or treating the disease. So hopefully that got you hooked on the idea that we really should be paying attention to the blood vessels in the context of Alzheimer's disease. And a few notes before I dive in. First off, a reminder that Aminder includes all papers from peer-reviewed journals for any given month, meaning that we don't exclude any based on our own perceived quality of the science or accuracy of the interpretations. We also mostly draw from the abstracts for the content of our episodes, so be sure to check out the full papers for more details and really to make your own judgments on the quality of the science before you accept anything you hear here as fact. We provide free numbered bibliographies with all of our episodes that you can find in the show notes, so you can note down the numbers of the papers that pique your interest here and track down the full manuscripts using our bibliography. And finally, to wrap up the housekeeping items, some common abbreviations you'll hear me use in today's episode are, of course, AD for Alzheimer's disease, CSF for cerebral spinal fluid, MCI for mild cognitive impairment, and BBB for blood-brain barrier. Any others, I'll define along the way. So with that covered, let's dive right in. We'll start things off here with a couple of papers focused on cardiovascular risk factors, which are a collection of health factors like high blood pressure, vascular stiffness, and abnormal blood lipids that can increase the risk of cardiovascular disease and of AD and other dementias. 
Gaining insight into exactly how these factors feed into dementia is a hot topic, and that's the focus of the next two papers. So first up, we have one titled Association of Aortic Stiffness and Pressure Pulsatility with Global Amyloid Beta and Regional Tau Burden Among Framingham Heart Study Participants Without Dementia. This is by first author Cooper and last author Seshardi, and this was a collaboration primarily between Vassar College and Boston University in the USA, and the paper was published in JAMA Neurology. As you could probably guess from the title, here the goal was to determine how aortic stiffness and several measures of blood flow and pressure, collectively called pressure pulsatility, are related to the classic hallmarks of AD. For this, the authors leveraged a cross-sectional sample of 257 individuals without dementia from the Framingham Heart Study who had arterial tonometry and amyloid and tau PET imaging done. In their multivariable regression models, they found that higher central pulse pressure and forward wave amplitude, both indicative of higher blood pressure and a stiffer aorta, were associated with more tau in the entorhinal and rhinal cortices. They also found that this relationship was more prominent in individuals over 60 years old. They didn't find any relationships with amyloid load or tau in other regions. Interestingly, the entorhinal cortex is one of the earliest regions of tau pathology, and these findings suggest that a modifiable cardiovascular risk factor may feed into some of these initial AD hallmarks, which does have important implications for potential interventions. So sticking with cardiovascular risk factors and blood pressure specifically, for paper number two, we have effects of diastolic blood pressure on brain structures and cognitive functions in middle and old ages, longitudinal analyses. This is by first author Takeyushi and last author Kawashima from the Tohoku University in Japan, and the paper was published in Nutrients. So here the authors did a pretty deep dive into associations of diastolic blood pressure, so the pressure between heartbeats, with a series of longitudinal outcomes. They pulled data from the UK Biobank to see how diastolic blood pressure related to future cognitive or brain imaging outcomes, and their findings pointed to a bunch of different directions. In terms of cognition, they found that a higher baseline diastolic blood pressure mapped with slight improvements in reaction time and depression scores. In terms of brain structure, they found that higher baseline diastolic blood pressure associated with more gray matter retention but lower connectivity, as measured by diffusion tensor imaging fractional anisotropy. They identified relationships with several other granular imaging measures as well, so be sure to check out the paper for those details. Overall, the study confirms that the relationship between blood pressure and dementia is not very clear-cut, and it warrants further investigation. Next up, we have a few papers that look to tie several aspects of Alzheimer's disease together by examining the interactions of vascular pathology with classic AD hallmarks. So to start off this section, we have paper number three titled Cerebral Amyloid Angiopathy Interacts with Neuritic Amyloid Plaques to Promote Tau and Cognitive Decline. This is by first author Rabin and last author Brickman, and this was a collaboration between several institutions in North America, including the University of Toronto and the University of California, among many others, and it was published in the journal Brain. So in case you're new here and haven't been introduced to cerebral amyloid angiopathy, or CAA, this is just the term for when amyloid gets stuck in the blood vessel walls. It happens frequently in Alzheimer's disease, but can also happen without the parenchymal amyloid plaques in some special cases. So here the authors were interested in the overlap with AD and wanted to determine how CAA impacted tau deposition and cognitive decline, and whether this relationship was independent of the parenchymal amyloid plaques. 
So for this, they sampled 1,722 records from three different longitudinal studies with autopsy data, which were the Rush Memory and Aging Project, the Religious Order Study, and the Minority Aging Research Study. And using linear mixed models, they found that CAA severity interacted with parenchymal plaques to ramp up tau burden and cognitive decline. Using a causal mediation model, they then found that tau mediated the relationship between CAA and cognitive decline in those with a high parenchymal amyloid plaque load. So overall, these findings suggest that CAA can interact with a high parenchymal amyloid load to promote cognitive decline via tau deposition. So more evidence here that vascular pathology is a relevant factor to consider. So sticking with this theme, but moving on to our old friend, the white matter lesion, we have a paper titled, White Matter Lesions May Be an Early Marker for Age-Related Cognitive Decline. And this is paper number four by first author Morrison and last author Collins from McGill University in Canada, and this paper was published in Neuroimage Clinical. Here, the authors set out to map how white matter lesions, as a proxy of cerebral small vessel disease, relate to the classic Alzheimer's disease hallmarks and how all of these factors feed into cognitive impairment. In an attempt to capture this relationship in its early stages, they studied 230 cognitively unimpaired older adults from the Alzheimer's Disease Neuroimaging Initiative, or ADNI, cohort, who had CSF biomarkers measured, white matter lesions quantified, and cognitive scores measured. They found that white matter lesion load was inversely related to CSF A-beta-42, indicating that vascular damage is associated with amyloid deposition, while there was no relationship between either of these markers and P-tau-181. At baseline, both CSF A-beta-42 and white matter lesion load were also associated with lower executive functioning. And then leveraging the longitudinal data of the cohort, they found that only white matter lesion load mapped with worse longitudinal cognitive measures. This suggests that cerebrovascular damage may be one of the first detectable changes feeding into cognitive decline, and the authors suggest that healthy older adults with a high white matter lesion load may be more susceptible to other pathologies and therefore have an increased risk of cognitive decline. So finally, the last paper about white matter lesions is paper number five, titled Oxygen Extraction Efficiency and White Matter Lesion Burden in Older Adults Exhibiting Radiological Evidence of Capillary Shunting. This is by first author Jatukonda and last author Salat from Harvard Medical School in the USA, and the paper was published in the Journal of Cerebral Blood Flow and Metabolism. So while the last paper looked at the relationship of white matter lesions with features of AD, these authors wanted to get at the underpinnings of these lesions. So there is evidence that oxygen deficiency is at the root of white matter lesions, as these imaging features are often observed post-stroke. And while it tracks that hypoperfusion may be to blame, these authors hypothesize that there may also be problems with oxygen extraction that contributes to these lesions. So to test this, they used arterial spin labeling MRI, specifically measuring the venous hyperintense signal as a marker of capillary shunting, which is when blood flow is accelerated through capillaries so there isn't enough time to exchange oxygen with the tissue. This phenomenon appears as a venous hyperintense signal because the oxygen makes it to the veins since it wasn't transported into the tissue at the level of the capillary. The authors also used dynamic susceptibility contrast imaging to quantify the maximum oxygen extraction fraction, and they measured white matter lesion volume and cerebral blood flow in 30 older adults. They found that in those with a venous hyperintense signal, indicating capillary shunting, a lower oxygen exchange fraction was associated with high white matter lesion volume, suggesting that these processes feed into white matter lesion presentation. Certainly some interesting insight into the complexities underlying these legions, so be sure to check this one out. 
Next up, we have a couple papers on vascular abnormalities in familial Alzheimer's disease. So familial Alzheimer's disease is also known as autosomal dominant Alzheimer's disease since it's genetically inherited with mutated genes in the amyloid processing pathway, leading to increased amyloid beta production and an early onset of cognitive symptoms. Many researchers in the field believe that familial and sporadic AD are different diseases entirely. They do seem to have different etiologies, but the jury is still out on that one. Here we have a couple of papers outlining similarities between the types of AD, specifically with respect to cerebrovascular abnormalities. So paper number six is titled, White Matter Hyperintensities Are a Prominent Feature of Autosomal Dominant Alzheimer's Disease That Emerge Prior to Dementia. This is by first author Shoemaker and last author Quiros, and this work came out of a collaboration between several institutions in the USA, the University of Sao Paulo in Brazil, and the University of Antioquia in Colombia, and the paper was published in Alzheimer's Research and Therapy. So as you could guess from the title, these authors wanted to characterize white matter lesions in those with familial Alzheimer's disease and determine how they relate to age and cognitive status. For this, they sampled from the Colombian Alzheimer's Prevention Initiative for 29 individuals carrying a pathogenic mutation in the presenilin-1 gene. This was the E280A mutation, which results in higher levels of A-beta-42, and they also sampled 21 non-carriers of this mutation, so controls. They found that cognitively impaired carriers had a higher white matter hyperintensity volume than unimpaired carriers or non-carriers. They also found that in mutation carriers, white matter lesion volume strongly correlated with cognition and age, even before symptom onset. Interestingly, when they combined several classic AD biomarkers into a regression model, they found that only white matter hyperintensity volume was a significant and independent predictor of cognitive performance. This suggests that white matter hyperintensities are an important marker of familial AD as well, and in effect that cerebrovascular abnormalities are likely important in this context too. So more on this with the next paper, number 7, titled Evidence of Beta Amyloid Independent Small Vessel Disease in Familial Alzheimer's Disease, and this is by first author Latau and last author Sepulveda Fala, and this was a collaboration between groups in Germany, Colombia, and the USA, with lots of overlapping authors from the last paper, and this one was published in Brain Pathology. So here, the same familial AD sample as the last paper was studied, but this time with a more in-depth characterization of cerebral small vessel disease post-mortem. The PSN1 mutation carriers were compared to those with sporadic AD and those with a form of small vessel disease called cerebral autosomal dominant arteriopathy with subcortical infarcts and leukoencephalopathy, or CADASIL for short. And the authors found considerable evidence of small vessel disease in the cortex and basal ganglia of those with familial AD, which was actually comparable to those with CADASIL and more prominent than those with sporadic AD. They also observed enlarged perivascular spaces in the familial AD cases, and that fibrinogen immunoreactivity, a marker of BBB permeability, correlated with age of onset in the familial AD cases, indicating that a compromised blood-brain barrier may feed into cognitive decline, as has been reported by others in the context of sporadic Alzheimer's disease. So drawing another parallel with previous findings in sporadic AD, these authors also found lower expression of a pericyte marker, PDGFR-beta, and an astrocyte N-foot marker, acoporin-4, around the microvessels with enlarged perivascular spaces, indicating a disruption of the neurovascular unit. Interestingly, not all of these postmortem differences mapped with white matter hyperintensity MRI data collected earlier in life. 
So with all of this data, the authors concluded that the amyloid-independent vascular pathology is prominent in familial Alzheimer's disease as well as sporadic AD, and this may not be detected during life by MRI, but it is an important aspect contributing to disease progression. So perhaps the blood vessels should also be therapeutically targeted in familial Alzheimer's disease as well. Again, more evidence that amyloid isn't the only viable drug target. So with that, we're over halfway through our episode. So after a quick break, I'll be back with more on vascular dysfunction in ApoE4 carriers, a pretty interesting proteomics data set, and a couple of therapeutic avenues targeting the vasculature. So stay tuned. Hi, I'm Ellen Rowe, host and co-founder here at Aminder. I've been with the team since the very beginning in 2020, and I really love it because it's an outlet to hone my own science communication skills, and I feel super passionate about the mission of making sure scientists are well-informed about all of the new research being churned out. It's also super rewarding to be a part of a community of like-minded and driven scientists from all career stages. If you're interested in getting involved with our team, we are currently recruiting new hosts and content creators for the show. This is a great opportunity for researchers interested in keeping up to date with the latest Alzheimer's research and getting some science communication experience in the process. If this has piqued your interest, you can reach us at aminderpodcast at gmail.com or through any of our social media platforms, and we'd love to hear a bit about you. Nearly one million older Canadians live with a form of dementia. This number is expected to double within 10 years, and sadly no solutions exist yet to dramatically reduce these numbers. It has to stop. Research can help solve this problem. We are 350 researchers fully dedicated towards preventing and finding a cure to dementia, and to improve care to those living with dementia. We are the Canadian Consortium on Neurodegeneration in Aging. The solution to dementia could be closer than you think. All right, welcome back. As promised, I'll jump right into a paper focused on the main genetic risk factor for sporadic Alzheimer's disease, apolipoprotein E, or ApoE. For more on ApoE, you can check out our upcoming episode on the topic hosted by Cassie, scheduled to be released September 4th. But back to this episode, next up is paper number 8, titled Vascular Dysfunction is Central to Alzheimer's Disease Pathogenesis in ApoE E4 Carriers. This is by first author Mick Corkendale and last author Sutherland from the University of Sydney in Australia, and it was published in the International Journal of Molecular Sciences. So this was a very enticing paper title for me, as it sums up a lot of what I've been reading about APOE and how the risk allele APOE4 can predispose individuals to Alzheimer's disease. There's a growing body of clinical and preclinical work demonstrating that APOE4 leads to a disrupted BBB, more capillary CAA, and other vascular abnormalities. Here, the authors extended this work and used a multi-pronged approach to ask the question of whether AD has a different pathological manifestation or pathological mechanism in ApoE4 carriers compared with non-carriers. So first, they used a machine learning algorithm to process over 2,000 different brain MRI measurements from over 30,000 cognitively normal individuals. They found that ApoE4 carriers had changes that mapped with vascular dysfunction, including worse white matter integrity in posterior brain regions. Next, using data from the Religious Order Study and Memory Aging Project, they found that ApoE4 status was more closely connected to posterior cortical amyloid load than tau load, and it was highly correlated with cerebral amyloid angiopathy severity. 
leveraging transcriptomics data from the same study and from another dataset from the Mount Sinai Brain Bank, they found that only in APOE4 carriers, differentially expressed genes in those with dementia compared to cognitively normal individuals were enriched for vascular-related gene sets, like angiogenesis. Interestingly, they also found that there is a stronger correlation with immune-related gene expression in APOE4 carriers compared with non-carriers. Definitely check out the paper for all of the details of their analyses, but these results certainly point to exactly what their title suggested, vascular dysfunction is central to AD pathogenesis in APOE4 carriers. So loosely sticking with genetic risk here, we have more of a diagnostic methods paper related to the vasculature. This is paper number 9, titled Retinal Vascular Study Using OCTA in Subjects at High Genetic Risk of Developing Alzheimer's Disease and Cardiovascular Risk Factors. And this one's by first author Lopez Cuenza and last author Ramirez from the University of Madrid in Spain, and the paper was published in the Journal of Clinical Medicine. So since the vasculature of the retina is intimately connected with the cerebrovasculature, it's often considered a window into the brain, and it's much easier to image than the brain. So previous work in this area has demonstrated that changes in the retinal vasculature may be a good biomarker for cerebrovascular changes linked with AD onset and progression, and these authors aimed to add to this work. They use a technique called optical coherence tomography angiography, coupled with imaging analysis software to visualize and analyze the retinal vasculature from 103 individuals with either family history of Alzheimer's disease, APOE4 carrier status, or both. They found increased vascular density in those with familial history of AD who were either APOE4 positive or negative, and reported some more specific regional differences in the paper, so check it out for more details. With these results, they concluded that this method was useful for detecting vascular changes that may be related to Alzheimer's disease. So next up, on to the proteomics paper, as promised. This one's titled, Upregulation of Ribosome Complexes at the Blood-Brain Barrier in Alzheimer's Disease Patients, and it's the 10th paper of the episode by first author Suzuki and last author Yoshida from the Tohoku University in Japan, and it was published in the Journal of Cerebral Blood Flow and Metabolism. So these authors wanted to get at the mechanism behind cerebrovascular dysfunction in Alzheimer's disease, so they purified brain capillaries from 4 AD and 3 cognitively normal individuals, and used quantitative proteomics to get a broad overview of differences in protein expression. Interestingly, and as the title suggests, they found that 28 of the 29 ribosomal proteins that were measured were upregulated in the AD capillaries, and this upregulation was not mirrored in the brain parenchyma, so it was only in the capillaries. Putting these findings into context, they also found that protein processing and N-glycosylation-related proteins in the endoplasmic reticulum were also upregulated, and they correlated with the expression of ribosomal proteins. These data suggest that protein synthesis and subsequent processing is upregulated in the capillaries of AD patients, but it's unclear whether this is a cause or effect of the AD pathology. Interestingly, these findings with differences in ribosomal protein expression were not mirrored by a recent transcriptomic study, emphasizing that gene expression changes do not necessarily map with protein changes, making validation with proteomic techniques very important for all of these transcriptomic studies coming out. Definitely looking forward to more proteomic studies focused on BBB changes. So on to our final section of the episode with a couple papers on therapeutic avenues targeting the vasculature. And for paper number 11 in our free bibliography, we have a paper titled Phosphodiesterase or PDE3 Inhibitor, Cleostazole, Improved Memory Impairment in Aluminum Chloride-Treated Rats, Modulation of Camp-Kreb Pathway. 
This is by first author Khalifa and last author Zaki from the Cairo University in Egypt, and the paper was published in Inflammo Pharmacology. So, in case you haven't brushed up on your biochemistry in a while, phosphodiesterase 3 is an enzyme that metabolizes cyclic AMP to regulate levels in several different cell types, ultimately fine-tuning downstream pathways. So cleostazole is a phosphodiesterase 3 inhibitor, which is often used as an antiplatelet agent, since by increasing cyclic AMP levels, platelet aggregation can be inhibited. Importantly, phosphodiesterase 3 is also expressed in smooth muscle cells, where its inhibition can lead to vasodilation. So some research suggests that cleostazole might be useful as an AD therapeutic, and these authors explored that avenue further. So for this, they used a rat model of memory impairment, which was treated with aluminum chloride for two months. They found that those treated with the drug had improved scores in the Morris water maze and Y maze, lower A-beta and P-tau, lower hippocampal cytokines, lower acetylcholinesterase, and higher neprilysin. While positive outcomes were observed in this model treated with the cleostazole drug, I think that validation in other models is key here. There has been some clinical data supporting the use of this drug as an add-on therapy for those with AD, but I think more research is definitely warranted. It would be interesting to tease apart which cell types the beneficial effects of phosphodiesterase 3 inhibition are attributed to as well. I think that would be a neat avenue of research. And finally, on to our last paper of the episode, angiotensin receptor blockers are associated with a lower risk of progression from mild cognitive impairment to dementia. This one's by first author Deng and last author Tang from the Sun Yat-sen University in China, and it was published in the journal Hypertension. So coming full circle here with the first papers of the episode, here the authors looked deeper into the popular question of whether antihypertensive medications could be protective against worsening cognitive symptoms. Specifically, they wanted to know whether the class of antihypertensive, either angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitors or angiotensin receptor blockers, made a difference on the risk of disease progression. For this, they leveraged data from 403 individuals in the ADNI cohort over a median follow-up time of three years, and they used Cox proportional hazard models to investigate the time to progression from mild cognitive impairment to dementia as the outcome. They found that angiotensin receptor blockers specifically were linked to a lower risk of progression compared with the other types of antihypertensive drugs, including angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitors, which target the same pathway. This is super interesting and potentially clinically relevant information that merits follow-up studies in larger cohorts. I'm also going to have to read up on exactly how the renin-angiotensin system is connected to neurodegeneration. I definitely know that pericytes, my favorite cell type, express the angiotensin receptor. So food for thought and further investigation. And that brings us to the end of this episode. Hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed learning about all of these interesting avenues of research. And if you did, we'd love if you subscribed to us and wrote us a review on whatever platform you're using to listen to us. This helps us reach more scientists like yourself and helps us ensure that we're keeping Alzheimer's research a well-oiled and informed machine. Another reminder that we do offer free bibliographies with all of our episodes so that you can track down the full papers that I've summarized here. You can find a link to all of our bibliographies in the episode notes. And also, we release bibliographies for the topics that we don't currently cover with full episodes, like fluid biomarkers. So check those out as a resource to start your literature search. Also, we're releasing episodes Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, so be sure to check those out for a range of other topics related to Alzheimer's research. 
Huge thank you to the whole Aminder team for bringing this project to life, and especially to our sorting team for their help in parsing out focused episodes like this one, my lovely reviewer Cassie, our editing team for this episode, our musician Anusha for writing the beautiful music that you hear in each episode, and our managers Sarah and Ellen Kosh who keep Aminder going strong. Also again, thank you to the CCNA for their sponsorship and for believing in this project. If you're interested in joining this wonderful team of ours, we're always recruiting. Send us an email with your CV and let us know what you're interested in helping with. You can also reach us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching A Minder Podcast. And of course, thank you, our listener, for tuning in. We hope you find this podcast useful and accessible. Bye for now.